I could tell you how Sometimes it's easy and sometimes so hard well, I swear to God well, I'm an atlas to the world I left well, It's the rock that I shoulder And it's the weight of the world well, It may seem strange in the way That it's not a memorial day No, it's not the day I cried It's the day we fought the first died well, And the day the second Turn us insides out Well I have to leave My job and my family To weep over brothers That I hide Yeah, good having you here, Mike. I guess to start out with, you've got some a lot of stuff on your walls back there. I don't know, maybe if that's a sword back there. Um, what, what do you have back there hanging? Whole, whole mess stuff, man. Just uh, some memorabilia from, uh, from my 20 years as a, as a combat controller. Whenever whenever you leave an assignment, uh, they they tend to give you some kind of swag, some to, to remind you of your time there. The the Spartan swords you see the Gladiator back there is is very heavily um, heavily influences the the special operations community. We kind of look at ourselves as as a profession of arms. Uh, our job is definitely to be the the tip of the spear, if you will, uh, to be out there fighting. Um, so yeah, swords. Pictures uh, over my right shoulder here. You see, uh, that's a little collage my kids put together when uh, my my oldest son, who's eighteen now, making me feel old. When he was in third grade, he uh, he put that together. So it's some uh, some memorabilia, uh, pictures of me, pictures of my wife. She also served. Uh, my brother in law, he's an officer. Uh, he flies for uh, for the Air Force. So military family. Did you miss any of your children's births? No, I didn't miss any of their births, but I definitely missed a good portion of uh, their early lives. My sons, so I have um, an 18-year-old, I have a 12-year-old, both boys, and then my daughters are six and one, and the baby's almost two. Uh, both my boys, I was definitely gone for a lot of their early lives, my oldest one especially. That was that was in the meat of uh, of my operational time within the uh, within the Air Force. So I was there, fortunately, thank, thank God, I was there for all their births. Um, but Isaac, my my second son, I remember being, it must have been a, a week or two after he was born. I was gone about 306 days out of the first year of his life. Wow. Where all were you gone to? Well, for Isaac, that was when I was stationed over in Japan. So all over Southeast Asia, um, Thailand, the, the Philippines, Cambodia, Malaysia, uh, you, you name it. I've been to it, Indonesia, um, most, most of those areas over there doing a lot of partner train assist type stuff. Yeah, my wife, she was just a soldier, man. She she definitely held it down. The, the true unsung heroes of the military story is the uh, the military spouse for sure. I, I believe that. And I've definitely heard that many times. So I wanted to start out then with your the battle where you re- received the Silver Star. Sure. Because uh, I would love for you to add some color to the citation. I'll, I'll put a link to the citation in the show notes. But will you describe... Give us some background on that. And, and maybe you, because a lot of the listeners on my show aren't military, Mike. And, sure. and actually, actually, there's several, uh, there's a pretty big women's audience too, I think. So can you just like from a civilian point of view, including me, I'm a civilian. So just kind of tell us what happened there. Cause I've got a few questions too, if you don't cover them. Absolutely. So it was, uh, it was a del- deliberate clear of uh, Chalk Valley, a uh, specific portion of Chalk Valley. We were looking for for a couple of key individuals. Uh, so it was a multi-hit, uh, multi-team hit. You had multi-teams going into different parts of the valley. And uh, my team was on the uh, the westernmost flank. And the expectation was uh, anybody coming in or coming out was going to come from, from our side. 
Uh, so we expected, uh, basically to say we, we expected contact. Uh, we went in uh, the night before. So the, the day of the hit of the citation, if you will, was the 23rd of October. Uh, we went in the night before. Covered darkness like we always did. A um, couple CH-47s, uh, so heavy medium attack uh, or medium lift uh, helicopters. My team, uh, which was OD-3116 and approximately 50, 60 commandos. Uh, commandos are the Afghan version of, uh, of Rangers, I would say would be the closest approximation. Uh, so they're not their the regular army uh, line types. They're they're more special operations for the Afghan side. Uh, so doing a deliberate clear of the uh, the village the way we normally would. The interesting thing about this particular objective was it had an apple orchard uh, that bisected it straight down the middle. So from a, a combat controller standpoint, that's a nightmare. Uh, it's a nightmare because the aircraft cannot see in there, which and then if you can't see in there, where do you think the enemy is going to hang out? They're going to hang out inside what we call the green zone. <laughs> so we had this green zone. Uh, so my team um, was to the north of the green zone um, with another maneuver element. And then we had our C2 element uh, with my commander. Uh, I was a captain uh, along with uh, another JTAC. A good buddy of mine was down to the south. Uh, and also uh, Chief Chief Mike Duskin, his uh, his maneuver element was down there as well. So we're we're systematically clearing through. Uh, really, nothing significant happened at night. Rarely did things kick off at night. Uh, generally speaking, the 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 insurgents were smarter than that. They they would wait for us to get into inopportune positions uh, before they would strike. Uh, very very intelligent enemy especially in this particular valley. Um, we had a lot of foreign fighters. So you had Pakis, you had some Saudis, you had a, a hot mix of people, not just Afghan-born individuals. So very intelligent fighters. Uh, as we're pushing through, we get to a whole point and we rest overnight. So that's basically, we go down to about 50% security. Uh, we're hanging out, waiting. And I was telling my uh, my team sergeant the next day as, a, as light came up, and I recall right before, right before the stuff kicked off, uh, I looked at him and I said, man, I, I don't know if these boys want to fight. And it was <laughs> it, it was almost immediate that uh, that we started hearing indirect. And that's just. Bah, 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 bah. And we could tell it was from uh, from a squad automatic weapon. So PKM, PKC, something of that nature. And it was, a, it was a pretty decent rate of fire. So we figured there was multiple firing positions um, around that time. A uh, buddy of mine, uh, Chief Warrant Officer Two, Mike Duskin. Uh, he radioed in and said he was troops in contact. So tick troops in contact. <clears throat> uh, myself plus my my team sergeant plus my communication sergeant or an eighteen echo, uh, and also our EOD. Uh, we had an EOD Army EOD guy with us. Uh, we jumped down and we real quick plan. All right, this is what we're going to do. And now eighteen echo is the medic. Is that right? No, echo is a comm sergeant. Eighteen delta is the is the medic. Okay. So we're we're heading uh, we're heading that direction, uh, and as and if you read the citation, uh, it says you know we sprinted 1.6 kilometers. We definitely hoofed it. I don't know if we sprinted. We were uh, we were in full battle rattle. Uh, I didn't take my go bag, which is going to come into play a little bit later. Um, my go bag being my my rucksack that had extra marking devices, extra ammo, things of that nature. And then it was because we we knew we were going to have to travel a pretty long distance on foot, and we needed to be fast. So we traded some sustainability for for speed and agility. So we're taking off and we're we're booking it. This whole time I'm I'm getting the aircraft hopping. I have an AC-130 whiskey overhead, and I'm getting them to key in to to the location. Mike, uh, at this point we had we had figured out had got hit. We actually figured that out on the run. Um, 
And the way we figured it out was because he couldn't talk. Uh, and I didn't know how many times he had been hit at this point, and nobody else on my team did either, is one of the Terps, the interpreters um, that was with him, and he had four or five additional commandos with him as well. The Terp was on him, and he was on his radio talking to us over Interteam, telling us what the, the status was. Basically that Mike had been shot multiple times. He was down, and they were getting shot up pretty well from uh, from a couple different locations. And so he's given us uh, feedback on where this these enemy are firing from as we're running up that direction. Uh, Jimmy, my my team sergeant, being the the older and wiser of us, myself and my uh, my comm sergeant are out booking it running. He goes and gets a truck, and he comes up he comes up behind us not too long after. Uh, but we made it we made it all the way to the uh, the point. At this time, I the AC one thirty had uh, had figured out or found where where Mike's location was, <clears throat> and I had him searching for enemy uh, the enemy where the where, where they were. So basically, if you if you want to imagine, you have like I said, you have village north, village south, green zone in the middle. Uh, and you had a building that ran kind of north south. Um, I can't recall the number of it. We we had it numbered for for our inner internal tracking buildings, but that building is where a large majority of the uh, the fighters were actually at. Not to mention uh, a PU site, so a point of origin uh, to the the south, and that was one of their heavy machine gun positions. There was another one just north of that building, and then we had a sniper position that comes into play uh, a little bit later, which was further to the north. So I was also working at this time, uh, getting some medevac on board. So I had, I had fired up a, a medevac nine line as best I could from what I had been able to pull from uh, from our interpreter. Uh, so I'm running, I'm talking to the AC-130, finding friendlies, working them on the targets to to get their heads down so we can get some cover for uh, for Mike and his team so we can get to them. Uh, and we're also working the medevac nine line. Uh, so all hey, that's Mike. So how much about how much weight are you carrying? My, my, my kit plus my battle belt, 75 pounds, give or take. I had a pretty heavy load because we were expecting to get into some pretty good fights in there. Uh, so I was carrying eight across the chest, uh, some frags, marking devices, two radios, additional batteries, um, and a little camelback bag on my back. Uh, and then my battle belt had my blowout kit, uh, my pistol, uh, all the things that go all, along there as well. And what terrain. was the terrain like that you were running across? It was Afghanistan, brother. It was it was not friendly. It was uh very very hilly. Where the elevation we were at was was high, uh, and if memory serves, around eight thousand feet. Nowhere near the highest location that we went to on that particular this particular rotation, but it's still pretty high considering my team uh, had come out of Florida. So we're we're coming from sea level, going to an area where they're plunking us down. My FOB uh, Ford operating base was at 6,000 feet. And most of the places we did operations were, were north of that. So yeah. uh, 8,000, the highest one we did on that particular trip, I think we went up somewhere was about 10.5. And that that was really rough. So yeah, the the terrain's bad. Uh, we have the fog of war, not knowing what's going on. Uh, we, we do have internal comms going. So we know that we have a team to the south that's also moving to Mike's location. My team to the north is also moving to Mike's location. The team to the south was still undercover. So they were able to get to him pretty pretty directly. Uh, my team actually had to cut across this uh, this green zone. And the way they do irrigation uh, in this country is they have steps. So if you want to imagine like a step and then it goes down deliberately, almost like a 65 degree angle, and then it'll pl plateau out and then a step and it'll plateau out. <clears throat> so we dismount uh, from the truck. Jimmy had picked us up about 1200 meters into the yard, the last 400 meters. Um, I was figuring out where Mike was at. I was taking the lead at this point. Uh, as far as leading the team to where he was at, I had it on my GPS. I had the aircraft talking me on his location. So we're moving expeditiously that direction. We get down to the break. There's an open area. 
which which ends up being my uh, my field expedient uh, HLZ a little bit later. Uh, but an open area about 100 meters by about 100 meters, and I'm I'm in direct line of sight for that building that I mentioned earlier that had turned out about 20 25 people in it. Uh, AK-47s, RPGs, uh, some heavy machine guns. They were they're definitely ready to fight. They're all sitting in there. But I see Mike and I get uh, I get tunnel vision and the way the citation reads, it, it sounds real John Wayne and and, uh, and Rambo. But I always use it as a teaching example to younger guys of what not to do. And that's don't get so target fixated on what you're trying to accomplish that you you let bad tactics take over. What I did was bad tactics. I ran across an open field with no supporting fire um, by myself trying to get to my buddy because my, my buddy's dying. And in my, my, what was I, 28, 29 year old brain, that seemed like the most sensible thing to do at the time. Uh, in hindsight, as a 40 year old man now, husband and uh, father of four, I probably would have done that a little bit different, but who knows? I had to get to my buddy. So that's what I was doing. Uh, so we get over there. I was told there was a pretty heavy volume of fire, but I was so target fixated at this point. I had uh, what's called auditory exclusion. Didn't didn't hear anything except the aircraft that I was talking to and my breath and my, my footsteps as I was running over there. So we get over there, we get in front of Mike, uh, we assess him, come to find out he had been shot seven times. Uh, I'd been shot in both his legs, been shot in his chest. Um, and they tell me he was he was unconscious, but I clearly remember him him looking up at me, uh, seeing his eyes. So we turn myself and, uh, and my comm sergeant and there's a there's a machine gun position. We start engaging that we're, we're effectively body bunkering Mike at this time, which is putting our, ourselves in between the fire and him. We didn't have anywhere to put him at that point and that, that threat needed to be neutralized. So we engage, also engage with the AC-130. That that quieted down. Uh, so I'm, I'm talking to the medevac bird at this time. And this this went on for about an hour or two. Uh, the medevac shows up. Uh, we're, we're constantly engaged this whole time. We're starting to get low on ammo, black on ammo, if you will. So low on ammo. So we're having to figure out, man, we got to we got to get one. We got to get Mike out of here. He's still he's still alive at this point. We had we had needle beat him, needle decompression, chest, uh, chest art him quite a few times. He's a big bear. That's, that's something else that definitely is worth saying. Uh, the man was six, five, two seventy. I mean, he's a big boy, big, big bear. It took a lot to took a lot to bring him down to that man fought hard. So we uh, we get the, the medevac coming online. And when you have a medevac coming online, they're, they're obviously an unarmed aircraft. And they always show up with, uh, with rescort or, or medical escort. So it's two H 64s uh, and H 64s. I absolutely love that platform. Uh, one of my favorite platforms to use just because of their maneuverability, their, their willingness to get low and slow and do what they need to do to protect the troops on the ground. Uh, I mean, I had some warriors this day and they came in and, they put down some hate rockets and some guns cleared up long enough to where I could get up to these steps uh, because I told you I didn't have my go bag. So I have to mark this HLZ, but I don't have any smokes to toss out there, which is fantastic. So I mark it with the best thing I could figure. And that's, that's 200 pounds of American. Uh, I, I jump up there on the steps and I, I pull out my VS 17 panel, which that's is the uh, impromptu landing zone. That's the impromptu landing okay. zone. So I pull out my VS 17 panel, which is just a, uh, it's it's orange on one side, cerise on the other. It stands out very well uh, in this environment. We use it for landing zones. We use it for HLZs. It's it's multi-purpose. Most combat controllers will, will always have a full-size VS-17 on them. I pull it out. I'm standing on the HLZ, literally jumping up and down, waving this thing around uh, so the medevac can see me. They do one dry pass. Uh, they're coming around to land the second time. I waved them uh, because all these people that are 
they're in this building. Uh, they're starting to figure out what we're doing. So they're pouring it into us pretty good. We're engaging. I waved off the aircraft because, man, I knew what they wanted to do. They wanted to shoot down one of our coalition aircraft. One, that's a logistical win for them. But two, that's a a massive, um, God, what's the word, propaganda win for them to, to get something like that on TV or something like that on, on video. So I wave them off. Uh, I tell the boys uh, that we need to get online and we start pushing towards this building, just just dumping what we got. So we're putting we're putting mags into that building, uh, get close enough, toss a couple of frags. Uh, we get them quieted down. We're able to get the aircraft to land. At this point, it's a quick hot exfil, uh, obviously, because this this is definitely not what I would consider a, a calm or a, a a cold LD, man. It's hot. So we're we're getting Mike, we're packaging him. He's already packaged. We're we're carrying his big butt up the hill. And as I said, 6'5", 270 of, of full-grown American. Um, but we get him up there. We get him on the bird, uh, do a quick patient transload, and uh, and the bird takes off. So at this point, we're we're tactically uh, exfilling. So still under fire at this point, but we're almost completely empty on ammo. We get back hey, up to that. Mike, sorry, can yep. I, what are the Apaches doing when the medevac lands? No, they they were still suppressing targets. So I had them actively doing strafing runs with uh with rockets and guns. So danger close strafing runs, rockets and guns, uh, out of them. And that's right shoulder, left shoulder, if you want to imagine. So you have the HLZ, and then you have the Apaches coming over both sides, putting uh putting down hate mainly on that main building, which is what I looked at as the main threat at that time. Uh, and really, what we were looking to do, I mean, you, you want to you want to neutralize the targets, but at the the very least, I wanted them to keep their heads down long enough for us to transload our buddy, get him out of yeah. there. Uh, and also, my team was exposed at that point because there was four of us carrying him up there to get him on the bird. So, got him on the bird, got him uh, got him out of there, and we we started tactically exfilling. We get back up the road, get uh get into the the Jenga truck. Uh, Jenga truck is just a fancy way of saying the truck they utilize. The reason we call them Jingle trucks is because they over in Afghanistan and Iraq they they put all sorts of stuff that dangle off the windows and it jingles when it drives by. <laughs> so we call, we call them Jenga trucks. Uh, we get back to the Jenga truck. Um, that's where the sniper decides to start talking to us. Uh, don't know what exactly he was shooting with, and he wasn't a very good shot, but he was letting his presence be known. Uh, my team starting or my echo, I can't recall which, uh, put him down. Uh, we get in the truck and get in the truck, and I think that was the closest or the the most that I felt like I was going to die when we were driving back. Uh, we had one of our one of our commandos driving the truck, and he hit every daggone rock. And they, they don't have rocks in Afghanistan; they have boulders. Um, and he hit this one. I'm not kidding. I'm talking to the birds as they're as they're departing the airspace and I'm checking them off. Uh, and I still have the AC-130 scan and I still have the 64 scanning on their way out. <laughs> he hits this boulder and I'm not kidding, man. I go airborne with all my battle rattle on probably weighing 250. <laughs> I go airborne. And I'm just like ghost riding this truck above it like eight feet. <laughs> um, I'm just like, man, I just got through four hours of getting it and I'm going to die in this stupid truck driving back to the, or break back your to- back. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I'm going to die driving back. Uh, so thankfully I didn't, the boys were able to, to grab me and get me back down to terra firma. Uh, we get back to the, the rally point, uh, we're refit and rekit and man, it's, it's a three day op. That was day really day one still of, uh, the three day op we found out. Not too long after that, uh, it was it was me that found out through uh, through my team lead uh, that that Mike had died en route, um, and it hurt, man. It hurt like hell. Um, but at the end of the day, we still had a job to do. Uh, we still had a mission to carry on, and we still had other teammates out in the field that were that were counting on us to do our job. So it's not like when you have a bad day at some other job, man. That's what I always like to tell people. This isn't a job. 
it's it's a way of life. It's uh, it's something you dedicate yourself to, mind, body, and soul. Because if you're not all the way bought in, man, people are going to get hurt. And when I say get hurt, man, people are going to get killed because you can't you can't allow yourself to feel in that situation. You feel later. Um, so it hurt, but man, our job was to was to get our ammo topped off, was to get everything else topped off. We had to, we had to work a, a resupply bundle. Uh, which I, I got laid on and I worked so we could we could top off all our stuff and then we continued our, our purposeful push through the uh, through the village. Uh, the remainder of time was relevant, rel- relatively uneventful uh, in our AOR. A couple of my buddies that were more to the central part of the, of the valley, they found uh, they found the person we were looking for and they they got ticked up pretty good. Uh, but for the rest of the time, that particular mission for us relatively uneventful. Uh, we exfiled a couple of days later. We went back to the fob and uh, it was, man, refit, rekit, get ready for the next mission. And it sits, anybody that that did that job for any period of time, man, lost brothers. Um, You lost friends, you lost people you cared about. And the the ones that were successful and were able to keep doing it were the ones that, man, could truly compartmentalize. And that's that's to say nothing negative against the ones who said, you know, after an event like that, that that, that they they were tapping out. It was... um, and it's just, I don't know, it's a different kind of mindset. Doc Grossman, I don't know if you read his stuff at all, like on yeah. Killing On Combat. He put yeah, some he's really been on the show. And he put some, some really interesting stuff out there, man, that I think could speak to it much better than my my uh, uh, junior varsity psychological opinions. Um, but there's something to it, man. There, There's definitely a different breed, a different mindset that, that succeed in, in the combat arms profession. It's, it's not for everybody. Uh, but, man, the ones that it are for, um, the people – that I was fortunate enough to serve with are just some of the best people God ever put on this earth. And I, I stand on that. Just uh, some of the most fantastic mm-hmm. humans you ever met, man. So that was that mission. Uh, that story hurts every time to tell, uh, man, it's been Jesus. What? 11 years now. And uh, so it still, still hurts every time to tell it. What is Mike's last name that was killed? Duskin. Have you met his family? Uh, no. No, I never met his wife. I know he has a son. Um, last heard, he he was in Ranger Regiment. Um, I, I haven't I haven't I haven't kept up with him, so no, no, I, I don't don't know. But I man, I know him uh, for the short period of time. I did know him, and I believe I said in previous interviews uh, that you you make fast friends when you're under fire, and that's true, man. As a combat controller, it's weird. We don't we don't organically work with our ODAs that we attach with. We nine times out of ten meet them in country. Uh, you don't have that pre-deployment spin up that you, mm-hmm. you would love to have because our deployment cycles never actually line up. So you're, you're, I mean, half, most of the time, what you're doing is you're coming into a team that's losing another JTAC that they've already been working with for three to four months that they have already built a relationship with TTPs, tactics, techniques, and, and procedures. And you're coming in and you're trying to, uh, you know, you're trying to, to fill those shoes, but also at the same time, make your own presence be felt and show that you're also an asset to that, uh, that team. I don't know. I don't know, man. I, I really enjoyed it. I've been able to work with, uh, with pretty much every special operations branch out there, SEALs, army, Marine Corps, uh, Rangers, SF teams. Um, yeah. MARSOC teams even worked with the coasties a little bit. So man, the, the, the gig of combat control, I, I have often told people is the best gig out there. Uh, you get all the training, you get to work. I mean, every employment methodology out there is, is something that we do. Uh, so diving, jumping, uh, free fall, mountain climbing, I mean, you name it. It's just different ways to get to work. 
Uh, and then also, man, you got the biggest stick in the world. Uh, you can be the best shot out there. I'll tell you what, that. But you give you have a competent combat controller with with good radios, uh, you know, some aircraft overhead. We'll reshape all battle space. Yeah. Uh, and that's nothing to say about us individually. That's just the capability in of itself, man, and just the the amazing raw power of air power and what it can do uh, in the hands of, you know, solid pilots and solid ground controllers. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah I, I love getting the word out about combat controllers, that profession. Mike, as you were telling that, you know, when you said you had to make that impromptu landing zone and you're standing out there, what I'm envisioning is you're – I will. I want to liken this to a story that of Mark's from his book of of a what a pilot related is. You're standing out there all by yourself like a big dummy, waving your arms. Is that really what you were doing though? I mean, you were completely exposed, a hundred percent, right? Yeah, yeah. Taking a lot of fire. Now, did you did you damage the building? I, I'm curious about this because I know there's there's some sometimes I guess damaging a build a structure over there is a serious thing. Can you maybe elaborate on that, or am I way off? So it can be, man. Uh, obviously, you want to take into account CBE, uh, casualty of, uh, of any kind of civilian or civilian equipment, et cetera, um, errant or, or unnecessary, if you will. But when in, in the law of armed conflict, and I, I definitely don't want to get myself in trouble, and this is me speaking for me, not speaking for the DOD or anybody else. Uh, but when you're looking at destroying a building, obviously, there are certain criteria that come into effect um, if it's being used as a as a uh, as a defensive fighting position or if it's being used to harbor weapons or things that could hurt or injure uh, Americans or American allies, uh, then under the law of armed conflict, the conflict that no longer is what you would consider a civilian structure and that becomes a military structure and military structures are allowed to to be hit. Uh, so, yes, I did damage the building. We damaged the heck out of that building and with a smile on my face. Um, I would have loved to drop some bunker busters on it and make erase that thing from the earth. But yes, the, we, we definitely put uh, put more than enough hate into it. The individuals that were inside of it uh, did not continue to fight another day. Uh, so we did our job. The individual that, that didn't like Americans too much and wanted to do harm to us, uh, they they entered into uh, they entered into something, and you know we we won the day, and that's the way it goes, man. That's uh, that's another part of the, the 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 armed conflict mindset, and that's another way you got to understand is people are like, well, how can you kill? You know, how how can you do all these things? Is it, man, it's my job. My job is to to go out and fight this this conflict. And beyond that, uh, my passion is to defend the, those guys on my left and my right. And anybody that wants to do my brother's harm, just like they would for me, man, you're you're gonna do everything you can to make sure that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a great story. You've talked about how great combat control is, but why did you choose it? Because you didn't know. You couldn't have been that educated about it when you were, whenever you joined at 18, I'm not sure how old you were, but you were pretty young when you joined. I was 19. Uh, so I was going to uh, to community college for like five minutes, really not going to school at all. Uh, I was, I was never much of a, an academic and my, my parents would tell you it wasn't for a lack of intellect. It was for a lack of care. Uh, I never really understood all the, the muss and fuss with, with academia, not to say anything against people that do. Uh, I absolutely appreciate uh, what they bring to the table. And I always tell people it takes all sorts to make this big blue marble turn around. Um, that just wasn't my bag. Uh, I knew I knew I wanted to do something else from the time I was a little kid, man. I, I knew I wanted to serve. So I was uh, I was driving to school, um, driving, driving to school and the, the towers fell and I heard heard him fall uh, on the radio. And I flipped it around, driving my 1990 Chevy Blazer, 
I went back to my apartment just in time to see the second towers fall. Uh, and I, I called up, uh, called up my folks and I said, I'm joining the military. And I went to a recruiter not too long after, uh, and she had, uh, I, at first I wanted to be a Marine. So I grew up in newer North Carolina and we had Cherry Point, Camp Lejeune, a uh, bunch of Marine Corps bases around there. And my knowledge of, of the military was really the Marine Corps and I wanted to fight. So I figured, man, I'll, I'll go join the Marine Corps. Those guys are all about fighting. I go in, I talk to the Marine Corps recruiter. He's telling me, yeah, I'll get you in 10 minutes before you get here, man. You just let me know you're ready to go. We'll get you up. We'll get you out there. My, uh, I had some family members who, who mentored me a little bit uh, and said, you know, go, go talk to the Air Force recruiter, see what they have to say. And I said, all right, I'll, I'll go see what they have to say. I go into the, the Air Force recruiter's office and nice lady, Texar, comes out and she's, uh, she's talking to me. I'm like, does, does the Air Force have anything that, that fights on the ground? I said, I don't know about that. And she's got this, this VHS tape on her, on her desk. Yeah. I'm, I'm dating myself, man. VHS tape on her desk and it's shrink wrap still. And it says combat control on it. I said, what's that? And she said, uh, you don't want to do that. You'll never make it. I said, okay. And from that, that moment, man, I knew that's what I was going to do. Um, I don't know if it's cause I was hard headed or, or what, but man, I, I knew that's, that's what I wanted to get into. I asked her what it was all about. She, you know, she really didn't know. And she's literally, I, she's describing it to me and I figured out she's just looking at the tape, trying to like take pictures off it and tell me what, tell them, tell me what it was. It's a, it's a really small community, man. It was even smaller back then. Uh, and it really wasn't too well known. I always like to say it was, uh, you know, best kept secret for, for special operations. Really not a whole lot of people knew about it. So yeah, I, uh, I tell her I want that. She says, well, I can't get you a guaranteed contract. You got to go in open general. So I go in open general, get to basic. And they, uh, you know, when they're handing out jobs, they tell me I'm going to be an F-16 crew chief. Nothing against F-16 crew chiefs, but I don't want to be an F-16 crew chief. So that just gave me extra incentive. I actually had a picture of an F-16 that I always kept. Um, when like, I was shaving, brushing my teeth in the morning. People thought that's because I was a fan of the F-16. It's a fantastic aircraft, but it's just because I didn't want to work on it. I wanted to, I want to be the one on the ground talking to it, dropping hate and discontent on, uh, on the enemies of our country. So, yeah. And about 120, 125 of us started to pass tests and about, uh, about two and a half years later, four was put on a beret. Well, you've had a great career now. You are retired after how many years? Uh, so I retired May of this year, um, went, went on terminal in about February timeframe and, I uh, retired, retired May 1st of, uh, well, I'm sorry, this year, last year, 2022, I'm still getting used to 2023. So what yeah, about, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Mike. I was just saying, I finished up at San Antonio, uh, San Antonio. So yeah, spent, spent the first 15 operational, uh, between the 23rd STS and, and the 320th over in Okie then back to the 23rd. Then, uh, then I went to, to do the instructor thing, ran dives or went over to dive school for about two years. Then I went out to San Antonio for the last three. So what about dive school, combat dive school? Because um, correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, Discovery Channel had a show years ago now. They were going through these different schoolings of, of the military, special operations and special forces. And they did one called, I think, combat dive school, I believe is what it was called. But it was it was your program, I believe. What is it and what kind of changes did you, were you part of or did you implement? So combat dive, uh, combat dive course uh, is the, uh, the course you have to go through to, to wear your combat divers badge. So there's different types of divers in the Air Force. You have all different types. You have rack divers, you have hard hat divers, you have uh, mixed gas divers, and you have combat divers. And I'm sure I mixed, missed a couple, um, <laughs> open water divers, scuba divers, et cetera. Uh, combat dive is, uh, is different in the sense that 
it is uh, diving for these these other professions as the job. Uh, for combat dive, diving is a means to get to the job. Uh, so it's it's a maritime infiltration method, uh, either over boat to a to a dive, or jumping out of a plane uh, to a dive. But the dive then leads to to a BLS or a beach landing site where you're you're going to conduct operations. So it's just a way to get to work, man. It's the same thing as taking the bus or a taxi. It's just you happen to be underwater at night. Uh, with sharks and dolphins and all other sorts of hateful creatures of the deep messing with you, which they do. The dolphins are actually worse than the sharks, man. They're crazy smart, and those things just like to come up and, and bump into you. Is that why uh, you're underwater or why yeah. you're like on top of the water? Both, both. Oh, really? uh, yeah, we we had more trouble with dolphins at, at dive school than we did with the sharks, man. Never the sharks, known that. Huh. Yeah, the sharks, you can get those things to go away. Uh, the, the dolphins are way too smart, and they'll sit there and play games with you. They, they, they think it's funny. Uh, like a bunch of teenagers. What do you do with the sharks? Uh, sharks, you, you generally just throw something underwater, like a, just a little explosive device. And it's not like exploding like a hand grenade, but it's it's just a noise to, to scare off the sharks. I got a funny story about that, actually, if you got the time. Yeah. I had a, when I was going through dive school, I was actually down in Key West uh, because Air Force Combat Dive School didn't exist at this time. So we were going down to the Army, CBQC, Combat Diver Qualification Course in, uh, in Key West. And we're doing our deep dive, which is about a hundred foot dive. And, uh, and I'm looking in the water and I, I see, I see a fin. So I'm, I'm telling dive suit this, you know, we got a fin in the water and he, he gives me one of the things, you know, a little underwater dispersion devices. Um, I throw it down there and the on is thrasher, about eight foot long thrasher comes up and, and eats it. And I'm like, well, that ain't good. <laughs> he eats the on thing. And then, uh, you know, we, we, Threw another one in there, and that that seemed to scare him off. And um, we we go down the line. This whole time, I just got in the back of my head. This daggone shark, you know, is, is eating our our things that are supposed to scare it off. Uh, we get all the way down. It's supposed to be the funnest dive of the trip. You know, you go down to 100 feet, you can possibly get get a little bit narked out, meaning you get a little bit euphoric. Um, I didn't feel any of that. I was just nervous as heck that I was going to get eaten by a shark. Uh, yeah. So as we're going back up the dive line, the shark sure as heck comes back around. I was the last one on the boat, and I was oh man. I was uh, I was nervous as heck. Finally got on the boat though, and didn't get eaten by a shark. So so small victories. As far as fast forwarding, when I was uh, when I was at dive school, I didn't go there initially um, as a as a superintendent. I was uh, N2IC, so underneath superintendent and the the commander. <clears throat> but then my superintendent actually made rank. Uh, he left, and then I filled in uh, for about a year and a half as a soup. As far as changes that I implemented, really no major changes, man. I was always very simplistic in my way of looking at the the training, the training pipeline, and the training methodology. I thought it should be hard. I thought it should be fair. I thought it should be consistent. I thought standards meant standards, and you know we held true to that. And that meant if you if you pass standard, you pass standard on. Unmitigatedly, if you if you did not pass the standard, then you didn't. And if you had X amount of attempts after that last attempt, then it was uh, was say la vie. The great thing about diving, man, and this is what I always say, because you know people are like, man, where where are you actually diving and filling into? It's not as much of a, a relevant infill technique as it might have been in years past. Uh, and I think there's a strong argument to be made for that. But what it is is um, a test of your mental your mental grit your mental toughness i don't know i don't know how to explain it man people that have a dive bubble it's just a different level of mental toughness because one of the the things that all humans are afraid of is drowning um, and one of the most effective ways to initiate a fight or flight response in somebody is put them in an oxygen oxygen depraved state and then ask them to do complex tasks or even simple tasks uh, a lot of things become difficult when you can't breathe and you feel like you're about to drown 
Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but once you get past that threshold um, and become comfortable with uh, we always called it the wizard you can call it whatever you want when you're about to, when you're about to black out you gotta go go see the wizard what we say uh but once you get comfortable with that man and realize that even in that deprived oxygen state even in that panic that panic mode there's another side to that where you still have another 45 seconds once you start guppying that you still have time where you can work and you can problem solve and you can figure out the figure out what you need to do to be successful and there's something on the other side of that. Once you do make it over that hump, like when guys made it past doing a 50 and they didn't think they could do a 50 meter underwater. When guys, you know, struggled with, uh, with tank tread where you have neutral tanks on your back and you got to kick, uh, and hold these things up out of the water, you know, guys with shorter legs, that was a more difficult task. And there's something to be said for, for getting through that. And it's, I think that's one of the key reasons. One of the things that has always separated combat control from, from other special operations community is hundred percent of our members were, were combat qualified. Mark had told me that every day he thought he was going to die during that's a fair, that's a fair assessment. And, you know, the air force asked me not to put that in his book. And so I didn't, I'm pretty sure I took that part out. They, they didn't like that. <laughs> well, you know what, man, you, you, you definitely dread getting up in the morning. I remember getting up for, for pre-dive and I had a very set routine that I did every morning and it ended with about seven minutes of me just staring and looking at the wall, literally just going through the mental reps of what was about to happen to me and trying as best I could to, to prepare for it and tell myself whatever happens, happens. But the most important thing that you tell yourself is I'm not going to quit. Man, never, yeah. never, never quit. I've, I've had people ask me and I've had people ask bros of mine, you know, what would it take to, to make you quit? And you always tell them, man, it, it ends with me being dead and you dragging my dead body off this ranger out of this pool because I ain't quitting. Um, and that's the mindset you have to have if you come into this life. Again, I'll reiterate, not a job, man. It, it's a way of life. It's something you dedicate yourself to mind, body and soul. And if you don't have that mindset, <clears throat> quite frankly, if I was still on team, I wouldn't want to be on team with you. Um, cause that's the level of dedication that we bring. And that's the level of dedication that we expect people that want to come into that job to bring as well. Well, looking back, Mike, now, what would you do differently in the pipeline if you could do it again? <laughs> oh man. Um, mindset or, you know, be prepared differently or, or, or what? So my, my pipeline was pretty, pretty straightforward, man. I, I had a pretty good run as far as what I would have done different. Jeez. I mean, about a million different things. Who knows? Hindsight's always twenty twenty, And whenever you know that in the answers to the test, it seems a lot more simple. And I don't want to give up too much trade secrets here. Uh, I, I would say that I would concentrate more on the water. Um, I, I was a I was a very proficient swimmer when I came in the military. And that was that was something that helped me out quite a bit. And do a little bit more work on the the underwater work before before I came in, possibly get more comfortable in that space, not by myself with uh with either a buddy team or or a lifeguard observing you i'm not telling people to go out and do underwaters on their own please don't do that um yeah just just getting comfortable in that space man and um the mental toughness the the running the rucking uh so much time on your feet uh getting and appreciating uh stretching that's something when i was a younger man you know i could get away with not doing but now that i've I've gotten some years on me i wish i would have stretched more i wish i would have limbered up a little bit better i wish i would have you know done my post stretch out, roll out, not taking that a little bit more seriously because I'm all busted up now, you know, tons of surgeries, um, shoulder and collarbone, both my knees, my back. And that's, that's nothing new, man. That's you, you talk to any operator, they're going to tell you a very similar story. Yeah. So, yeah. So I, I guess I would, I would take the, 
the holistic approach, which is really what the military is doing on its own now. Uh, take a more holistic approach to how I look at your body as a machine versus, you know, I'm just going to go wing it and we're going to figure it out and, and get mm -hmm. through it. So being more proactive versus reactive. Were you going through any of the pipeline when uh, Mark Lauren was, uh, I, I guess he went by maybe cling or something. Then, yeah. But oh yeah. Was, I, I remember, I remember clinging at her. Well, he was, uh, he was one of my instructors at, uh, at ATC and uh, we feared that man, uh, the triple treats, man. He he's the one that taught us that. A uh, hundred flutter kicks followed by a hundred, a uh, hundred hello darlings. So just scissors like this and then yeah. followed by a hundred leg lifts without putting your legs down, without putting your heads down or your head down. Uh, that was an absolute monster. Uh, that dude was a calisthenics, it still is an absolute calisthenics beast. And he could run to boot, which made it even worse. Yeah. Yeah. So like the traverse course, anything, but we, we didn't want to see, we didn't want to see or starting playing. Uh, we, had a we, had a, we had a really I, I had great cadre all the way through, through the pipe, man. Guys that were just physical specimens uh, that were operationally relevant. Um, and that's another cool thing about our job is you get you get some some jobs where you have people that, that will that will hang out in the operator or the uh, the instructor position. Man, our 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 instructors were overwhelmingly operationally relevant, meaning they had actual deployments under their belt, uh, which in my mind, you know, almost should be a prerequisite to be an instructor. Mm -hmm. um, if you're going to teach the next generation, it's not just about how well you can lead calisthenics or lead a, lead a formation run. It's that warrior mindset that you're, you're instilling into these kids. And it's hard to do that unless you've done it yourself. It's hard to fake that. If, if mm -hmm. that makes sense. So you call yeah, him, so I, I know Sergeant Clay, I know Sergeant Clay very well. <laughs> and you called him Klingonator. Yeah. We all, we all did, man. He was, he was a Terminator. That, that may yeah. have felt. Like <laughs> yeah. Ish said he, they called him um, cyborg. Also, yeah. was that another one? Oh he, yeah, he, he was a beast, man. He I, he's been on the show a few times. I really like talking to him. I I have his app. I still I've been following his workouts for since Jan, well since January twenty eighteen. Nice. Um, but yeah, I love I love his philosophy, especially as I get older too, with all of the slow and great form, and uh, and then the, definitely stretching and and just you know all the the hip work and shoulder strengthening. Man, it's I wish I'd known about it years ago. Yep. It will improve your quality of life uh, in the long run, man. I guarantee it. Yeah. Well, what about leadership, Mike? You've you've had examples, I'm sure, of great leaders and not as good leaders. Would you give what are some examples like maybe whether it's like what type of leaders that you respond to or, or what are some examples or some styles that you've experienced that were not the ones that you should emulate? Sure. And then some that you should. <laughs> Sure. Uh, so when I was uh, when I was a kid running running high school cross country, I had a coach. I think finally cracked the nut on how to get through to me. I never responded well to positive feedback, um, and that's because I expected to do well because I worked really hard. Uh, so my expectation was to do well, and like people telling me that I was doing well, or you know, go, buddy, you're doing so good. That, that never did it for me. Um, I was again hard headed, and he finally figured out. Well, I'm going to tell him he sucks, and he's doing a terrible job. And that, that motivated the heck out of me. Uh, so I was always more motivated uh, to not fail. Um, so leaders who, one, led by example, uh, two, had that never quit attitude, the same, the same as I did that I wanted to emulate. And three, uh, would give me hard, real feedback early and often, man, was what I really responded to. And it's because I, I just had this deep, burning, innate desire to, to succeed not for myself, but for my team. I never wanted to be the reason my team failed. Uh, so 
I always took the the hard, the hard, I guess the hard leaders, man, are the ones I gravitated to, the one that would, I guess nowadays kids would say it's like abusive. I don't know, man. I, I looked at it as I was in a profession where I was going to shoot people and people were going to try to shoot me. So I wanted tough people uh, around me um, because that's what I wanted. I wanted to be hard. I wanted to be strong. Uh, I wanted to be bulletproof, not only physically, but, you know, mentally, I wanted to be, to be tough up here. So that was the leadership style I liked. I mean, aside from that, man, I've had great leaders. Um, it's, it's hard to point a finger at, at too many bad leadership examples, just because I've, uh, again, just been surrounded by some of the best people our country, our country has to offer. Bad leadership, though, would be, I mean, the the scarlet mark in our community is being a micromanager. So somebody that that just sits over top of your shoulder and and watches everything you do. Um, we can't stand that. And I mean, if you get if you get that kind of attention, it's for one of two reasons. One, it's because the leader's a bad leader, or two, it's because you don't have the trust of the leader, and they feel like they have to watch you to that level. Yeah, that's that's a tough question, man. Um, I could give you plenty of examples of great leadership and giving you give me examples of bad one. Man, just somebody that's gonna be over my shoulder, somebody that uh that tells me to do a thing that they're not willing to do themselves. The instructors in, in the pipeline that we always had the most respect for uh were the ones that they weren't just gonna smoke us when they told us to do something, they were gonna do it with us. They're the ones that dismount the Humvee and push it with us. They're the ones that they tell us to do a thousand eight counts, man. They're dropping down, they're doing them with us. Uh, because they had the mindset which is always a mindset that I very much so appreciated myself when I was an instructor was if you failed as a team, it's because I failed you as an instructor. So we're all going to get this PT, uh, but crap rolls downhill. You know how that goes. So yeah, that's, that's the mindset that I, that I, that I loved to see. And definitely the, the kind of mindset that I tried to hold myself to and that I tried to hold my fellow instructors to when I, when I did get into that space. So did you ever come into a team, a leadership role that you were, the previous leader, you know, maybe more morale was down. The previous leader had maybe been a very poor leader and they needed a change of guards, so to speak. Did you ever come in a situation like that? And if so, how, what were some of the initial decisions that you made and things that you did? I wouldn't say I ever went into a position where the, where the previous brass was so bad that morale was down, but obviously there's been plenty of times that morale was down where you're, you're taking over a team or you're taking over an assignment. Uh, where something bad had happened, which with us, something bad was always happening. I uh, mean, somebody downrange was getting hurt, getting killed, some of that nature, and it would it would drag the boys down. Uh, what you did is you you stuck to what you knew, and you you kept the team focused on the vi the vision and the mission. Man, a good leader can rally people around uh, a vision, can can believe in something so fervently that that it's almost it's almost like a, like a tractor beam. You're pulling other people into your, your crazy little world where we're all going to, we're all going to, you know, sled dog, if you will, we're all pulling towards the exact, exact same objective. Uh, and honestly, that's the best kind of, uh, the best kind of therapy I ever had, man. I can't speak for the rest of the boys, but I think I'd be pretty safe to say, uh, most of the guys would tell you that, uh, the best therapy we got, and we had all sorts of assets available to us, the best docs, the best, and that's physical docs of the body, you know, head docs uh, for speaking to counselors, et cetera, dietitians, strength coaches, all that great stuff. And man, the best therapy I got was sitting in the team room with my brothers and uh, and talking to people that understood what I was talking about, that understood, um, man, when I would say something that would that would probably strike some people as, man, this person's crazy. They're like, yeah, man, I've had that feeling before. Yeah, man, I've, I've felt that way before. Yeah, I've done that before. It normalizes things that are not normal. Being part of a community where everybody shares a vision already and is already collectively pulling towards that, it's not hard to rally the troops. 
Um, you might have somebody that, that's in a leadership position that's toxic, but they tend to find their way out of that position pretty quickly uh, because they're going to get sussed out by their team or they're going to get sussed out by the leadership above them. When you got a lot of really great folks, man, the ones that are not so great, they stick out and they find their way out of uh, out of that position or out of the career field pretty quickly. Yeah. You put on your resume, take care of your people and they will take care of you. Why, did, why was that important enough to put on there? It's philosophy, man. That's, that's what I believe in. I believe it. And I think it's important enough to say um, because that's the mindset I have of, man, my team needs first. Um, my team, my team's needs come first. As a leader, you eat last. So there's, uh, there's a couple of great books, but one of them is Leaders Eat Last. And the underlying philosophy of it is, man, one of the number one things for being a great leader is to be a servant. Uh, you're a servant to your team. You're a servant to your mission. Um, what they don't see is when they're all going home, you know, four five, six o'clock, you're still in there in the team team room till, you know, seven, eight o'clock at night because you did all the training with them through the day. You had your door open that entire time. So anybody that needed to have a conversation could come in and talk to you. But at the end of the day, you still got paperwork that needs done. You still got EPRs. You still got to work on your, your, you know, team leads, OPRs. You got a training schedule. You got a budget you got to put together. You have any number of things within ATC, you know, the the, the PWS or the POI needs updated. Uh, it could be, could be any number of things, man. Um, but you, you need to be available for your team. So take care of your people. They'll take care of you. And the mindset's pretty simple, man. Man, if you take care of your folks when they're hurting, when they're down, and when you, when you're having that same bad day, man, your team's going to come up and they're going to pick you up and they're going to pick up your slack and they're almost going to do it unconsciously. Uh, it's, it's almost like you're not individual people. You're, you're part of one organism that, if there's a problem, the the rest of that 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 organism or that body is going to react and 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 pick that failing piece up. That's another great thing about the special operations community, man. Is you are so small that you know each other, you know, almost as well, if not better, than your own family, especially in your operational years. Because God, you spend more time with the, your teammates than you do with your uh, your wife and your kids. Yeah. Well, I'd imagine too, Mike, that at some point you and and these guys are going to be out of the military probably, or maybe, and they're not going to have to respect you because of the position that you're both in. And if you, if you have been a servant and you've put yourself first, then there can make be a time where you need them. And, and, and so the roles may be reversed. And if, if they don't like you, if they didn't like you when they were serving under you in the military, then they may not help you in the, when you get out. That's hundred percent truth. That uh, I'll tell you, man. The treating every relationship as an interview is something that I would say often. Uh, you treat every relationship as an interview, man. You only get one chance at a first good impression. Uh, I would say that often. And really, what I mean by that is, and it, it's not for self gain, man. But it's the way you carry yourself. And when you carry yourself like a man, and you carry yourself respectfully, and you treat other people with that respect, regardless. Uh, of who they are, where they're from, any of that nonsense, man, it's very binary. Uh, man, you're good people or you're bad people. If you're good people, then let's get to work. If you're bad people, then I don't want to work with you and I want you out of my career field ASAP. So yeah, yeah, I 100% concur with your assessment, man. Uh, taking care of your people and and carrying yourself and your name recognition uh, within that community is very important because being so small, uh, there's there's you know a saying that I'm not going to say to its fullness because it's a little bit crude, but you know, you can build uh you build 999 bridges to mess up once. You're not a bridge builder. You're, I mean, you're a screw up. 
that's the uh, the specter of, of being in a very small community, being in a very small family is people aren't going to remember your accolades, your bona fides. And especially it's not even that cool when you have, you know, cool accolades or bona fides to 99 percent of other people, because when you're surrounded by a team room full of people that have all done stuff like that. Again, it's normal. So that's that's the thing when you when you talk to guys uh, from our community and you're like, man, that's so cool. This this thing you did or such a great story. And it's just a story. That was a day. That was that was one day out of a 20 year career. Um, and I could point to 20 guys off the top of my head that have done way cooler stuff than that, uh, that, that may or may not have received the, the same accolades. Yeah. I'll tell you the, the big thing that separates your top three awards from other awards within the military. And this is not a, a hard and fast thing. And again, speaking for myself, is if there's a loss of American life. Uh, that'll that'll turn what would normally be what could normally be a BSMOV uh, into something that would be you know Silver Star Air Force Cross. Uh, th- I mean, there's more refined criteria than that, but just my own looking at it and my own knowledge of it through met a lot of friends who received a lot of different a lot of different wood. That seems to be a pretty common recurring theme, and that makes it hard, man. So that that means when you're talking to somebody that has a top three, so Silver Star up to Medal of Honor, that almost certainly an American was either shot or or killed. Um, in in the uh, you know that award and that could be the individual himself or that could be a teammate of theirs. Never looked at it that way, and you certainly participated in many more conflicts, many more very dangerous situations. I know you you how many bronze stars you you got a bronze star with valor? How many do you? Is it one or are there more than that? I got, yeah, I got one BS one VA silver star on uh, bunch of commendation medals, achievement medals. Um, humanitarian assistance medals, stuff like that. We always called them, um, and not to discredit these at all, man, but we always called them, um, you know, merit badges. And that, that's also the way you have to look at it because that keeps you from getting a big head. Yeah. Man, when you when you step back and look at it, when I was a kid and I looked at people that, that received any award, I was like, man, that's the coolest thing in the world. But when you're actually in the position and you're, you're receiving this stuff, it can be really easy to get a big head real quick. Um, and we like to stylize ourselves, and it's not just stylizing, it's, it's truly the way we live our lives, especially in combat control and the, the AFSOC community writ large as silent professionals. I mean, we're not going to go out there and tell our business just any Tom, Dick and Harry, your stories have value. They have value yeah. because you, you hold on to them and you utilize them for a purpose. If you're just going out there and giving it away to anybody on the street, one, you're not doing that for their benefit because it's not going to benefit them. You're doing that to, you know, inflate your own ego. And uh, again, that's not the kind of people we want yeah. to be around. Listen, Mike, I'll tell you, um, I've said this before on the show, and I know this is not just a, this is not always the true, but in my experience, I believe strongly in this. I've had a lot of people over the years that they just feel like they can just, they just start telling me everything they did in the military. And it just seems like the ones that just like freely right off the bat, and I've had several do this, start telling me all these great things they did. And they usually throw in seals in there. I think they're full of crap because one, they don't know me. I didn't even ask them and they just started. And it was just like somebody just, they just really needed to, maybe they have some low self-esteem. I'm not sure. They just wanted to just, or they just like to lie. I don't know, but I didn't, I don't believe any of them that just start just blabbing and telling me all these great things that they did. Have you ever experienced that? Oh, yeah, man. Yeah, you hear a lot of blowhards and nine times out of 10, the ones that, that can't wait to tell you a story are, are generally ones who are embellishing or then possibly even stealing somebody else's story and trying to pass it off as their own. But real recognizes real, man. Uh, you, you walk into a room, 
you know, the real ones are pretty quick, especially from our, our world, man, because being attachments, we nine times out of 10, again, we'd go into a team room, you know, downrange. We didn't know these people. Uh-huh. And now we had to go, we had to go into combat with them. Um, and you real quick figure out, man, who are the ones in that room that are, that are worth it and who are the ones that are not. And that's as you get, get further down the line, get some more deployments under your belt. Your first one, you're just scared to death. Uh, you think you're going in there with a bunch of John Rambos. So yeah, uh, man, I, I, it's never something that really bugged me that much, man. I never really gave it much thought. Uh, I just looked at people that, that wanted a gas like that and, you know, do your thing, bud. Good for you. Uh, those are the ones who wouldn't get the good deployment spots because, you know, they weren't great at their job. And, and honestly, they weren't very well thought of uh, within the community because because of that mindset. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody wants to hear your stories, man. We want to see your actions. Get out there and get out there and go do the thing that you're talking about doing. What else, Mike? What What's something else that's, you know, in closing that you want to make sure that we cover? Uh, well, uh, I'll tell you, man, the any success I've, I've had, I, I would attribute to to three main things. One is is my belief in Jesus Christ, uh, my, my faith that that there is something other than just what we're doing right now. Uh, my family, my wife, my kids, um, we had definitely had a hard road. Um, but they've kept me grounded and kept me kept me moving in the right direction, especially when I didn't deserve it. When, as I would say, the demons come, you know, when, when you have those thoughts that you, you want to beat back, but they just won't go away. Been the ones that have pulled me out of it. <clears throat> and then my fervent belief in my team, you know, and my, my desire to, to succeed and for us to succeed to, together. Anybody that would ever look at combat control or pararescue or, or SR or attack P, uh, I would tell them to, to come at it humbly, to understand the, the fraternity uh, that you're, you're looking to join, the the family that you're looking to join, do your homework, uh, come in polite, come in respectful. Don't come in bl- as a blowhard because nobody's impressed. And then let your actions do the talking for you. That's great advice. There's a few people I know that are wanting to get into the community or young in the community and, and they'll, this will be great for them. Here, one thing, Mike, this is just, this is just kind of random, but I thought of this the other day. Because uh, I know my brother Mark, when he he used to come stay with me sometimes on the weekends in Tuscaloosa when he was in the pipeline, and he was just and he'd tell me that I don't feel bad one bit for sitting here on my butt all day and watching TV on Saturday and eating Chick Fil A and drinking a milkshake. He said because I work my butt off so hard during the week, I, I, I'm good with this. What about you on maybe on weekends or something? Did you what was your favorite maybe junk food or something? Did you do anything like that or did you just veg at all? You had a family that might have been a little bit made things different or more I mean, difficult. Yeah, yes and no, man. Um, you, you had times where you were just so smoked you didn't want to do anything. You, you'd come back from a trip or, or a deployment, um, and you get you know a, a couple days of you know you get to you get to kick your feet up, and then then you know you had you had a job to do. Uh, as far as if you were a family man, you know you you had things you had to do around the house. You had to. You know, you had to play with the kids. Really finding your way back into that that rhythm, though, is really important. I know this isn't directly what you were asking, but I think it's I think it's a valid point when you're when you're coming back from deployment, man. Don't just try to jump back into this place you were in before you left, uh, because there's a whole new structure that's been set up while you've been gone. You know, mom's been covering down on mom and dad duties. You just got to find your way back into that rhythm, man, and and do it respectfully of, of what's going on there. Uh, but yeah, man, I I definitely. Uh, would, would throw down basically whatever when you're going through the pipe, especially you can eat, I mean, you can eat whatever the heck you want and get away with it. Uh, nowadays I can't do that. Um, but yeah, man, pizza, 
tacos, whatever, um, barbecue. I was a big fan of barbecue. I grew up in North Carolina, so I love barbecue. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, I mean, you were just so smoked on the weekends. You really didn't feel like doing a whole heck of a lot. And the guys that did and then went out and, <clears throat> you know, rage or whatever, they they paid, they paid for our money. And we all did dumb stuff when we were kids, man. But uh, I think that's something that uh, – you would talk about something that I do different. It's probably that. And, you know, that's a good point of bringing it up. Maybe maybe sp- take a couple more weekends off and, and not go out and, and be crazy and stay stay home and not do anything. Get a little more sleep. Get a little more sleep. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when I, was gray, when I have so many gray hairs in my beard now. <laughs> well, anything else, Mike? Not that is uh, I think that about covers it, man. It's uh, I mean, you could talk about this stuff all day uh, is a uh, great targeted questions, man. I appreciate the uh, I appreciate the the time. I appreciate the the platform, man. And I thank you very much for what you do. No, man, I, I really appreciate you being willing to come on. This has been great. I'm glad the ish put us together because I was talking to him uh, back in December about it. And he said, I'm going to I'm going to send you some some for some folks. Yeah. And hey, we you know, we do that memorial walk every May. I know it's a little bit of a drive for you, but we'd love to have you sometime. If you, ever, if you ever feel like coming up or if you feel like rucking 28 miles of your own free will and choice, you know, come on. <laughs> I love rucking, man. I, I hate running. Uh, rucking, rucking's good. Um, I, I, what I had an instructor say, running breeds cowardice. I'm going to, I'm going to walk to the fight at a comfortable pace so I can arrive there refreshed and ready to do God's work. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's good. <laughs> My knees are blown out now, man. So running hurts, but uh, I can still tow weight. No, good, good. But we do it. I don't I don't carry weight when I do the actual walk. I train with the weight, but then I the day of the walk, I'm just my necessities in the backpack is it that day. Uh, rucking, rucking or walking, man, is a great way to get in touch with with what's going on around you. That's uh yeah, you know, it, it takes you to a different place when you when you got that tick on your back. We call it a tick, you know, because it just sucks all your energy out of you. But it, it really allows you to to focus and and be in tune with what it is you're doing, and uh, and either pray on it or think on it or meditate on it, whatever you want, to, whatever you want to think. But it allows you to to focus on something. So a lot of validity to it, man, for a great cause, obviously. Yeah. Anything for the fallen is is definitely a valid, awesome, amazing thing. You know, something else cool about rucking is it's a, it's something you can do. It's exercise that you can actually hold a conversation with. You know, you I mean running? It's hard to do. So you're walking and you're, you're burning more calories than, than just regular walking. And yeah, you can have that trust or whatever you got, you know, with your, with the people you're walking with. We're going to have a bunch of 150 pound runners mad at us, man. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I don't like running either. Uh, I, you know what, man, there was a time where I liked it a lot better. I don't, I don't like it so much now um, but that, you know, it's still a great way to do business. And I, I think, uh man, good PT is, is a mix of, you know, a combat mix of everything. Uh, doing a little bit of everything, some high impact, some low impact, some high intensity, some low intensity. And it's really, it's knowing your body, man, trying to, trying to just pick a, a workout regime off the shelf and say, this is going to work for me. And it might or might not. Um, I would really say, just know yourself, know what works for you, know what your goals are that you're trying to achieve and then get after getting them done. Yeah. Well, one thing that Klingonator taught me <laughs> is uh, sprints. And so I love yeah. I do love doing sprints, long distance runs. I'm not, I don't really care about it. high intensity. Yeah. Well, man, it's been a pleasure. I, thanks, Mike. I really appreciate you a lot. Thank you for your service to our country too. And, and for, you know, raising a family while you're doing all that and God bless your wife and kids for what they do. Cause you're right. I mean, unsung heroes right there, the spouses that, that come home. And I, and I noticed what you said a while ago is 
when you get back from deployment, don't just try to step back in like how things were. I mean, there, there may be a whole new routine there that you've got to maneuver through somehow. You must learn that from experience. You know what they say about, uh, about wisdom. You get what the only way you can get wisdom is age and screwing up. Uh, so any, any wisdom I have is definitely from, from doing the wrong thing and, and figuring out it was the wrong thing and trying to do better the next time. Yeah, man. I appreciate you. God bless that. I appreciate it, brother. Take it easy, man.
and I love and raise my can Sing songs out loud in my truck that we loved back then I wish I could tell you how Sometimes it's easy and sometimes so hard But I swear to God I'm an atlas to the world I left And it's the rough of the shoulder And it's the weight of the world Let me see strange in the way That it's not a memorial day No, it's not the day I cried It's the day we fought the first died And the day the second He turned us insides out Well, I have to leave On my job and my family To weep over brothers That I hide 